0: Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Joanna Harvey, a Chartered Occupational Psychologist. She has a broad range of experience in Occupational Psychology in an applied setting. Currently the Professional Head of Occupational Psychology for the Ministry of Defence, Dr. Harvey is a key member of the Cross-Government Occupational Psychology Forum, Board Director for the International Military Testing Association and leads the Occupational Psychology team at Army Headquarters. Her notable works include the psychology of integrating women into dismounted close combat roles, support to the Executive Committee of the Army Board on the psychology of strategic decision making, and the psychology of leadership in the British Army. More broadly, Dr. Harvey is an Associate Fellow of the British Psychological Society, a registered practitioner psychologist, and a member of the special interest group in coaching psychology, and has a PhD on organisational and traumatic stress in the British Army. So Joanna, it's lovely to, to talk to you today. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Uh, and I've, you know, I know for, for, for one, certainly myself and the team will be fascinated to explore some of the areas that you've been working on, especially as we start to grapple with understanding the difference between the art of leadership and the science that actually enables people to, to be better leaders. So thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on today.
1: No, thank you. It's a good opportunity. Um, I think it's quite
0: interesting, so for our audience, you know psychologists in the military have, have had a very long history with the armed forces in the round, not just the army, but you know since the Second World War all the way through,'ve we've, we've had all sorts of various different aspects contributing, probably actually since the first world war, if'm I'm, if I'm correct, if not before, and, I'm, and I'll stand corrected, about you know understanding our various different capabilities and our practices. So perhaps to, to break from convention, I, I normally sort of get into a few quick fire questions at the start. Perhaps you you wouldn't mind giving our listeners a, a, an overview of what your role is um, and the other psychologists who are an occupational psychologist in particular who are employed within the Ministry of Defence.
1: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so psychology as a, as a sort of profession is probably quite complicated for many people from the outside. So we have um, seven, I think, regulated professions and they cover things like clinical psychology, forensic psychology, um, occupational sports, et cetera. And they're the ones that largely provide inter- interventions with the public. So um, so you have to be sort of regulated by the um, Health Care and Professions Council. So we have um, largely clinical and occupational psychologists in the MOD um, in those roles. But um, we also have a a large sort of research base of psychologists, particularly within DSTL, who do a lot of sort of the underpinning research around cognitive or cyber, for example. But we also have a number of other psychologists who work um, particularly in Joint Forces Command um, doing things like cyber as well in terms of understanding human behaviour and how that is within the military context.
0: That's definitely an area that we are starting to focus in on Know, much more closely than we've probably done before about human behaviors um, and and how we uh, both act as leaders but also react and interact with those who are, are in our teams. I um, conscious that you you've, you've got some vast experience of working with various different levels within the, within the army in fact within defense. Perhaps I could sort of ask you what what leadership means to you from from the context that you look at it um, as a psychologist.
1: So I think it's interesting if you consider leadership in terms of how it's sort of um, progressed um, over history. So it started out with more of a sort of an individual character based kind of approach to leadership. And then you talk about great leaders like Nelson and and all the other ones. Then it moved towards the sort of the contextual situational side of leadership in the probably in the 50s and 60s and then I think the next move was really around followership so well who makes up the team who decides to follow a leadership leader and why do they decide to follow so it's less about the character sometimes it's more about the situation the opportunity and the um the sort of the interaction between between those things and the followers which then will define who's a leader for a specific point in time because I think also if you Take a military context; you can be a very good leader in the field or in an operational environment, but you're less like you know you you may not be as good a leader in a staff environment, for example. The very different contexts.
0: That I mean, th- these are I mean, of the podcasts we've done over the last certainly this year, but I suspect also the ones we were we were doing um, in detail last year. Th- those two things are really interesting points that come out in terms of. Leaders and followers, and whether one is a, a a leader in all aspects of what you're what you're doing in a position of responsibility, or whether one has the ability, um, or, or indeed is is given the authority to allow others to 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 take responsibility for some of those roles. So that's that's certainly something that we would. And do you think that's something that we are better at doing now, or or we're we just more aware of it?
1: I think we're more aware of it and again if you take the theory as well it's looking at sort of you, what kind of approach to leadership do you have do you have more of a authoritarian sort of controlling approach to leadership or do you move through towards a more democratic inclusive style of leadership and i certainly think that um we are Definitely more aware of needing to be more listening, more inclusive, more more um, taking other people's opinions and views. And that idea about am I telling or am I listening And, and how how does the leader use their resources? It's not just things as resources, but people as resources. So I have a team around me. Or people that I can use, or stakeholders that I can engage with, that can make me and my decisions more effective as a leader. Mm. So again, I think we're definitely more aware of that. But again, it's the situation will will vary, you know, will vary, and and you'll have to adopt your your style depending on your situation around you.
0: I think we in the doctrine we unpick the exactly what you're saying: the transformational versus the transactional leadership, and the fact that there's there's a greater requirement for transformational leadership to bring other people on to allow them to develop you know the concept of mission command to allow people to go away and take an intent and, and deliver it but also at the same time of of knowing when to be transactional and to tell someone what needs to happen you know especially in the army on the, you know, or in the military in the around but on the army on the battlefield there needs to come a point where the, the leader has to take quite literally command of the situation but that can actually happen at various different levels. So we it's a really interesting it doesn't have to be the, the battlefield commander as primus into the pares decision maker.
1: The other thing that's something quite interesting is that sometimes followers actually want a leader who makes quite significant decisions mm. and some of the passive leadership is really unhelpful and can be quite detrimental. So when we it's interesting when we talk about the terms of toxic leadership for example Uh, The Swedish um, Armed Forces uh, University did quite a bit of study around sort of toxic leadership. And they found that some of the most toxic leadership isn't the kind of bullying dominating one. It's the passive leadership where there was a sort of inability for the leader to take a stand, to make a decision and to be unclear about certain things. So then people weren't able to know where they were. Do
0: you think that's a inherent human trait or is that a particular failing of an individual the the inability to make a decision or, or perceived inability to make a decision at the right time
1: I think it's partly I think it's going to be both isn't it so there's going to be the characteristic character traits of people but there's also going to be the situation and the context which is around well if you make a bad decision is that actually going to be worse than not making a decision so Mm -hmm. how's that going to reflect on you and I think if you look at things like um, holding people to account managing risk things like that it's a hard thing to do I think and also we're we're constantly monitored, aren't we? So what we do is assessed and measured and monitored all the time. So, you know, and if you actually make a mistake, there may well be people who go back and look at what decisions you made. So therefore, I think sometimes it's easier not to make a decision.
0: Yeah, which creates stasis. And and like you <laughs> say, it, it you know, actually sometimes people need decisions. And, and of course, you know, as cadets at Sandhurst and and. And indeed, on on a myriad of other courses where our young soldiers are developed as leaders, one of the central things is always, you know, make a decision and stick to it. So then you were sort of unpacking, you know, why did you make that decision over not making it or or constantly changing your mind?
1: Yeah, and that's it. Then you get into flexibility, isn't it? So actually, at what point does changing your mind is a good thing? Um, and what point actually is it not very good if you continually change your mind? So again, there's all these things that we're thinking about when we're making decisions and we're being a leader and, and everyone's watching us. And it's, it's, um, it's not easy, I don't think.
0: It, when it isn't, um, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the fle- flexibility being a principle of war is, you know, you, you, yeah, if you stick dog- dogmatically to one thing and, and don't allow others to, to, um, to have an input. But this is, gets into the bit about the art of of leadership, and but actually backed up by the science of how people lead in certain contexts and certain environments. Do you, with with some of this in mind, um, and from your experience, do you think uh, leaders are born or made?
1: I think you have people who are born that they are naturally quite. Confident or self assured, but then that is reinforced by the situation and your experiences. So I think with anything in psychology, you end up saying, is it genetic or is it environmental? And you always end up with the same argument that it's a mix of the both. Um, so I would say, again, it's a mix of both. There's a little bit of character and there is some experiences which will sort of accentuate those character traits.
0: So with that in mind, your if we're saying that some form of latent ability as a a leadership ability, and and ultimately that's what, you know, certainly the officer corps around the world, then there'll be people listening around the world who are um, ex-military, military, military, uh, and never have been. But those who've been through leadership schools will understand that the selection process of getting to those schools is looking for some characteristics. What, What, in your view, are the, are the core characteristics that that we can identify. And then in turn, how should we or perhaps might we develop those um it, it, through the evolution of training, but also one's career path?
1: So it's interesting. So I think you do have to be that balance between being confident and self-assured willing to put yourself out there but being balanced and mitigated by that humility and self-awareness about your impact on others Um, and then you've got the sort of the more intellectual component probably which is this sort of considered a little bit wise willing to take on board um, views of others so I for me I think it's those kind of three elements really about you have enough confidence that you will put yourself out there you um will consider and listen to other people's views and you have that kind of um that humility and awareness about how you you impact with others so i think those kind of three elements of a character um your character traits are really really important how do we and
0: interestingly you know your the leadership attributes in the that we recognize in, in our doctrine are, you know, you've, you've, absolutely, you've absolutely hit that one. You know, the humility is ultimately one of the biggest ones that, that when one survey, conducts a survey, everybody turns and says, you know, the humility of a commander to know when perhaps they either are right or indeed are wrong, or indeed when they can go to others and ask them for, for their view. How do we develop that? Or how can one develop it better?
1: And that's a big one, isn't it? Because again, you can have a self-perception that you are humble, but it doesn't mean you are. And um, it's things like emotional intelligence. I think the mostly how we measure emotional intelligence is by self-report, and that's not terribly helpful um, mm-hmm. because other people have a different view. So obviously there's various things like 180 degree assessments, 360s, um, you know, there are some personality profiles that you can use, which will then start a conversation um, with a coach or with with someone else. So you can start to explore actual examples where it did go wrong and where it went right and what did they do. So I think it's really taking a sort of... um, It's a mechanism and a 180 is a good mechanism or tool to do that, to actually then explore situations, I think, in in greater detail about what you did and what the potential impact of those could have been. Do you think we do that enough? I don't think we boil it down to actual examples enough. So even if you take things like 180s, you can get a 180. You can get a, a feedback and a readout. You can choose whether you take that on board or not. Um, and so who's, who's helping you to discuss that? So I think that's why a coach or a, um, you know, a psychologist, not psych, is really helpful with that, because then they can start to challenge those perceptions and say, OK, you think it might have been like that. How else could it have been mm-hmm. uh, to somebody else in the room? So I think you've, you've really, if you take something like cognitive behavioural therapy, it takes situations and it boils it down to well, what were the actual behaviours? What were your thoughts around those behaviours? And what were the feelings associated with that? So you really drill it down to, to detail and say, how could you do it differently? And how did you approach that?
0: This is really, really fascinating. I think, you know, this is where we really are starting to ask ourselves here in the sense of our leadership, how do we how do we unpack or unpick those various different personality orders and traits and ensure that teams are more compatible because we've got the right mix or right blend of of different types of personalities, which people understand their own strengths and weaknesses because you've exactly hit, you know, you've hit that where they can, they've had feedback, but so so rarely are we getting, or, or to date, I mean, knowing that the, the army in particular is bringing in 180 and 360 degree reporting, which is a, a real positive. Are we actually going to take that a, a step further and do the analysis of what that suggests? And therefore, a an, uh, further second and third order part of that might be understanding therefore what we as individuals, irrespective of what rank one is, know what our Various strengths on our weaknesses, and therefore, what, which one we need to work on, and perhaps which one we need to to shape or, or invest in.
1: Yeah, so we would do things like that with um, team development sort of activities. So, for example, um, we could go out and do um, psychometric personality assessments with teams. We've done it with command teams, and we do it with sort of larger scale ones. We say, let's use personality assessment and work out what people are, so you understand the way you might approach things differently to place dependent on your personality I won't say type but you know the way you filled in the questionnaire um so we would do that quite regularly and then say and so what what's the impact of that in terms of if you think like this if you're very extrovert for example if you take something like the MBTI how might you approach something you might actually be more slightly dominating you might talk more you know how do you allow the introverts to have a have a view and how do you make sure everyone gets um Um, gets an equal sort of approach or or, um, a voice in the the discussion. So we would do that with command team developments. And I think that's really, really useful. So when you you boil it down to sort of smaller teams and you actually go through how they interacted and then, then you could take through things which didn't work out for the team and then say, okay, it might be because... You have a lot of people who are very judgmental, for example, in your team or who like things in a very ordered, ordered way. So then how do you allow creativity to sort of come in or innovation to come in? So, again, when you work with those smaller teams on a sort of five to ten people, that's when it gets really effective. So we did that, for example, with, um, uh, for example, um, a, a group of people, a group of army people who went across the Antarctic and we said, okay. what are your weak points and what are your good points? And then, you know, how do you feel the leader, leaders are with you? And then, how do you, how do you challenge the leaders if they're a certain personality type? And how do you actually, when you have small teams, how do you make it more democratic so you each have a voice? Because otherwise, if you if you do something like you go across the Antarctic for three months, those issues can become really really big. We have to start addressing them. First of all, so it's not like a staff environment where you can go home at the end of every day, you have to deal with them. It's much, much better to bring these out in the open um, and discuss them in a workshop or whatever beforehand. Um, so you can start to think about, okay, this is probably an effective mechanism or route or, or sort of techniques for us to actually deal with conflict.
0: So that the, the sort of that whole team building process uh, and the understanding of the characters and characteristics of each person within the team. I think, you know, some, some organisations within the military and without do much better than, than others. With regards to the, the, I think, you know, the initiative of the 180 and 360 reporting, which I know some of the brigades are working on at the moment and it's going to come in, certainly at our our senior cohort of officers are starting that process. Do you, do you think there are any potential pitfalls of a uh, multi-source feedback from a psychological perspective?
1: So yeah, so we've been doing sort of three sixties and one eighties for. I've been involved with them in the army for probably I'd say a good seven eight years now. So mm-hmm. you know the arm generals and the and the general staff induction course for for full colonels have been doing it for as I said about eight years. I think it can be really useful. I think I think we don't want to rely on it too much because actually. the, The problems are around actually how long it takes for someone to fill it in. If you've got a thorough 360, it will take people quite a long time to fill it in. So therefore, um, it's a lot of resource to actually fill it in. You've got to do it sensibly, you've got to do it not sensibly, but you've got to do it seriously. And you've got to be willing to put yourself out there and actually write. Um, write feedback, which is of value to the individual, and be honest with that feedback. So in a very hierarchical organisation like the military, it can be difficult to expect people underneath you to fill it in honestly. So we can say, yes, it's anonymous. So in order to try and assure that anonymity, you need to make sure that you have a minimum number of people to fill it in. So people feel confident that they're not going to be identified. Because let's face it, anyone who's had a 180 or a 360 and you read a narrative, you always think, who wrote that? You know, you always try to work out who wrote something negative. So we've got to try and make sure that that's protected. I certainly can say I did... um, for ECAB, the army board about four, four, five years ago, I did three sixties for all of ECAB and, um, people were generally honest, you know, they said stuff that they wanted to stay. So, um, so as long as you have, the 180 or the 360 fed back to you by someone like an occupational psychologist or someone who's trained and then you can take some of the key themes coming through from those assessments and then draw out some sort of understanding and and discussion around that so you don't just focus on one negative for example you actually say okay is this one person who's got a problem or it's a theme that's coming through
0: so this perhaps is where we might yes of course personal opinion is 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 very personal and at times can be constructive. But if we look at it and say, okay, we've got this process, which is a, a one layer of the um, assessment process or the judgment process in terms of how one is performing, you know, the, perhaps the use of artificial intelligence to be able to triage the information, um, you know, for example, you know, we know that the, the radical candle levels that Netflix and Google, for example, employ. Uh, or rather their employees can use. So you get immediate feedback on on how senior leaders within those organisations are performing, and it, and it feeds into their their annual reports. And that's done as a, almost a sort of tick box exercise as opposed to having to write, you know, um, sentences and paragraphs, which might then, the, the subject might start dialing into who's written that about me and why. Do you, would that be something that we can perhaps evolve?
1: Um, I, I would say at the moment, I don't think the tech is up to it at the moment. And I think if you take um, a lot of the sort of algorithms that are used um, in, um, in the sort of data analytics at the moment, they're, they're too simplistic, they're too reductionist. So um, they lose a lot of the meaning and, and context behind it. So in which case, it's very easy to misjudge or not understand the themes coming through. So I'd say I would not, not at all want to rely on it at the moment. And also it can be quite brutalistic, I'd imagine, if you just get a sort of a, um, an algorithm come through with, um, I don't know, keywords which are connected to you.
0: Mm. I think,
1: and if you do, I think it's really, really important whenever you have feedback to an individual that you have this kind of middle person who can interpret and analyse and, and create meaning from that. Yeah. In, a, in a non-personal way and I think that's the value that you get because then that's you can you can support and challenge the individual and then because you ideally the point is to develop them isn't it mm, it's not to shock them or to
0: yeah
1: to um to reinforce them it's to say how are you then going to take this and develop and so that's why you need the middle person
0: I think that I th- I couldn't agree with you more and, and sh- sh- surely I was, getting, I was you made a comment just a second ago about how one interprets what is written about you or how one what is written about one and the new sort of human nature naturally says oh who's written that about me but but if we perhaps inculcate a an understanding of this is being written about you to help make you better you know we already think you're good we want to make you better rather than this is a negative comment which then human perception will always be or oh, oh, you know they think that of me rather than oh they think that of me therefore i'm going to and, and but critically we give people the tools or the ability and the, or the analysis of those comments and the tools to make themselves better so to effectively improve their weaknesses
1: yeah no i, I do think we can do that and i think in a managed way um, rather than just a form. So even if you take something like um, a lot of people have had personality assessments or IQ tests done in the past, most of, most people will not remember what is said in the in those assessments or what they were or or what the sort of development points associated were in that in the feedback that they got if it's a written piece of feedback. So how do you make it meaningful and how do you make someone actually pay attention to it that they remember it in a year's time, for example? Mm-hmm. I think that's the critical bit, and then that's where you have to apply it and make it real for the person, Mm. and really give examples. Um, So I think, yes, we can give people feedback, we can can give them a readout, but then how do you then situate that in their, their context, and them as a person to then take the step forward? So again, it's how does that middle person make it real? To allow you to develop as an individual leader,
0: we're definitely talking about you know some of the so absolutely the, the constructive observations uh, in a formal context in terms of one's annual or biannual reporting process. But if we take a step back and look at it from a, uh, a this the concept of the, the challenge culture that we've we've talked about a lot over the last six to twelve months, and it's certainly coming into to to mainstream conventional military thinking in that you know allow people to challenge thinking Uh, how do we bridge the gap between obviously what is done at you know in elite teams whether they're in the military or whether they're in you know um, high performing elite sports where there is a very very clear structure of challenging ideas and being honest and open but also understanding that perhaps in the mainstream conventional areas or big business which which is is is, um, is perhaps not necessarily a niche high performance. How, how do we get that culture in there so that people understand they have an ability to add value by challenging rather than just uh, degrading by criticising?
1: Challenge is a really interesting one. Challenge culture, we talk about it a lot and we talk a good game in the military, but I'm not sure we actually do it. Mm. I think you have to look at what the barriers are to effective challenge. And I think... It goes down to this really hierarchical organisation, isn't it? And then the opportunity to challenge. So there's probably formal challenge and informal challenge, and people are happier to have an informal conversation around challenge, but they often don't get opportunity, particularly within a hierarchy. So people are less likely to challenge in a meeting or a formal meeting where it's exposed and people are less receptive to challenge in a formalized approach where others are there to see so how do we then set the conditions essentially for a informal challenge which isn't seen by lots of other people you know so as a leader you're more likely to take if there's not a sideline comment by someone low, you know of a lower rank than you you're you're more likely to take it if nobody else is really seeing it or if it's in a, a do you know what I mean? I think it's about the visibility of that challenge that I think there's a problem sometimes.
0: Do you not think that that is, in and of itself, a core component of of sound leadership to be able to encourage challenge, and, and know and for therefore and then your audience to know when challenge is becoming destructive as opposed to constructive?
1: I think there is, but I think sometimes I think. <laughs> It's not just down to whether the leader is open to it. It's about whether the situation is constraining it. So I think in formalised settings, the situation constrains someone from a lower rank to actually say what they want to say that is opposing. So if you take things like groupthink and, a, and where you've got consensus of opinion or, or a lot of military meetings are very ordered and very structured and there's no space to actually mm. say something that's out of out with the agenda... Because there's a, you know, there's a, anyone else got anything to say? And everyone says, no, no, everyone, I agree. There's no space to to come up with anything different. So how, so that is very constraining in itself, even if the leader is open to it, Mm -hmm. and says he's open to it. There's this social kind of, um, it's almost a bit of a social repression that people aren't going to go off off list, you know, off kilter, off programme. And I think that's the constraining bit. It's the environment. So then how do you widen out opportunities and space for people to say something unexpected?
0: But it's interesting. I think it's a really interesting point to sort of maybe pick apart a little bit. You know, we, we on the podcast, we've, we had Admiral McRaven, who was, uh, you know, a... a well-renowned SEAL commander who talked about this, exactly this, you know, allowing teams uh, to, to people in teams and teammates to to challenge decisions or challenge uh, action and activity. Um, and likewise, we've had, you know, Will, Will Greenwood talked about it as did Kate Richardson Walsh from a, from a you know, high-performance, top-level sport perspective. Surely this comes down to inculcating trust both within the leader but also the leader trusting allowing allowing their subordinates and trusting them to add value and 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 that, that is something that we we surely can improve across the board
1: yeah no I absolutely do agree with that we we have huge amount of work to do I think to improve that I think there's a number of other issues that come into it um, as well though also you know the more motivated you are or, or how the more important you see that end goal um, will also impact on it. So you take, you say elite sports, you know, that are able to challenge. Well, actually look at the, the sort of examples we've had of bullying culture that have gone mm. on sport and that's because the the individual team members it's so important to them they don't want to challenge because they don't want to rock the boat you take a military environment where promotion is really really important to a lot of people they're more likely to sort of repress or subdue some of their challenges because mm-hmm. they want to tow the line because it's not worth their re- you know their reputation or, or the impact it may have it may not have on their career um, because it's the end game is really valuable to them. No, so I think you'd probably you've got a model somewhere, haven't you? Where you've got this idea about challenge, and you've got all these other things which are constraining, or mitigating, or enabling challenge. And I think it would be worthwhile looking at that in more detail and working what those are.
0: I think you're right, and uh, you know, I've, I personally find this fascinating, and I'm sure um, people listening will be as well. Does this not then stray into what we talked about to 15 minutes ago about toxicity? And, and leaders, whether they're passive or, or active in their toxicity, not allowing their subordinates the opportunity to, to add value by challenging, because that's what's ultimately happening. Ultimately, it's by, by challenging a, 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 the thinking or the action, as long as it's constructive to ensure that the delivery of the outcome is therefore better the next time round, then everybody is going to improve. And actually, therefore, the onus is on, is on the leader to enable that to happen. No.
1: Yeah, absolutely, to set the conditions. Yeah. So for example, when I um, you know, when I work with ECAB, some for some of the people to actually encourage and um, challenge and alternative ways of thinking, you would put in formal sort of mechanisms to do that. So it might be Every meeting I have, I will verbally point out someone that your role is to give me a, an opposing opinion. So, therefore, people know it's acceptable to come up with an opposing view. And so you can formally put in these different sort of techniques or mechanisms to encourage the environment, which will then allow people to see it as being more normal.
0: Uh, and just, to, just for, for our non-military listeners, the, the ECAB is the Executive Committee of the of the Army Board, which is our our top strategic management board where where the big strategic decisions are made. Can you you perhaps tell us a little bit more about the work you've done and and perhaps the the psychology and how you're trying to evolve that behind strategic decision-making and whether or not that differs from tactical decisions that some of those commanders might have made in the past?
1: Um, So it's interesting what we mean by strategic, isn't it? So I think we use it as a um, coverall term. So I think partly strategic is around saying... Am I able to think and we designed the core KC, which is our appraisal framework, um, and we had strategic thinking within that. And so part of that was forward thinking, but it was also breadth thinking as well. So the ability to think across in a sort of horizontal way as well, to thinking what was the impact of something, the first, second, third order consequences Mm. of something. So I think if you use that as strategic thinking, and when you take it at a senior level of any organization, large organization, it's the sort of Almost the juxtaposition or whatever between working out things at depth. So, you need to know detail and at depth, but you also need to know breadth. And so, where's the balance? And I think a lot of senior leaders struggle with that because they will be held to account and they will be asked about detail. So, therefore, how can you manage both the breadth and the depth? and and be able to make considered opinions on that a lot of that is having i think the confidence and the time and i think time is critical here to actually say i will bring in the person who knows the depth i don't know the depth but i'll I'll, i know people who do know the depth and you then resource manage so well that you know those people that can provide you with that with that depth but i think the time time constraints are a big 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 problem i think we have in, certainly in defence, but probably in public sector and, and wider. You don't have the time to actually go and ask the people who might know sometimes. So you're relying on those few people to be able to to identify and, and give you those experts.
0: So does the psychology of decision-making, do you think, fundamentally changes from tactical to strategic or, or lower level to senior level, depending on w- <laughs> however we want to phrase
1: it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of... The, <laughs> Some of the theory around decision making is that we think it's based on considered thought and um, evidence, but a lot of it isn't. It's instinctive. So there's something called recognition prime decision making where we're, we're basing it on patterns of information. And then we'll pull that together really, really rapidly and we'll make a decision based on that but it will be coming from an instinctive base. And again, you can say this is system one, system two thinking, which is a Danny Kahneman thing as well, is most of our decisions are not logical, thought-based considered, but they're, OK, I've got an experience or a sense of this and I'll I'll rapidly make a decision based on that. And so, obviously, the more senior you are, the more comfortable you are with a, an organisation or an environment or a knowledge base, you're quicker at making those instinctive decisions. So I think it's very easy to for senior leaders to make an instinctive decision based on values, vision, your you, what you want the higher order outcome to be, but you haven't necessarily gone through that thoughts-ordered process um, others might have done it on your behalf, but I think strategic decisions are often, often not based on that lower level thinking.
0: If if instinct is is intuition, and intuition is based on knowledge and experience, how do we ensure that as people become more senior? they have the time and space to continue to develop so they do make the right strategic decisions rather than having just to rely on on pure instinct.
1: I think, again, this goes into part of being a good leader is knowing your resources, and your resources will be people, expert, different evidence bases, data, whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. it's having those at hand and having a good you know things like good chiefs of staff that can actually do that for you so Mm. so they're able to corral that information that you can use um you can use at your fingertips so i think most people when they get to really really senior levels they have a they're controlled by their diary often you know they have very little free time to really think through and work out what the gaps of knowledge are what Mm. where they could improve and i think with our senior leader we would probably be better to give them more free space to think things through and i think, I think that's a, really that would be really effective no i
0: think that's a very good point i think yeah by um by filling a, a principal's diary with um with meetings and not allowing them the time or space to think about the decisions they're about to have to make or agree upon is uh, is folly what might we be able to do in terms of the the the? So, going, coming back to some of the core work you've done, how do we then not allow if, if instinct is in, is important? But how do we ensure that we don't effectively limit that so much that people start relying on conscious or unconscious biases or cognitive dissonance purely because they're not given the space to to assess the full spectrum of what it is they're being asked? Mm-hmm.
1: So I suppose if you are basing it on instinct, you're more likely to be open to biases, unconscious biases, because you're kind of making decisions more rapidly. So I think some of it is training. So some of it might be that you decide to take a number of different activities or decisions and you use those as a vehicle to um, to really go through a deep evidence based review on them. So you almost try like not little experiments by Different examples by right? these three meetings or decisions. I'm going to have a really strong evidence base and a really um, sort of logical, almost systems. Um, I think our systems too. I can't remember which ones which. Thinking where I've gone through in a very logical manner, um, and then the others. I'm going to go with my instinct as as to how I would have made the decision, and it'd be really interesting to compare the two to see if you're, your outcome was the same. Because you're right, instinct is really important. And I think particularly if you're out in the field, um, sometimes you need to know when to pay attention to your instinct and when not to. Um, that sixth sense is really crucial, particularly when there's kind of risks around it as well. Um, but, you know, we do, I do a lot of stuff around accident investigation. And I think you, you can go back and, and look at accidents in hindsight And, and, you know, we would do we do a timeline of um, of the human component of that. And you can say, at these two points, for example, this is where we could have changed the direction and had someone taken a step back and said, okay I'm now going to reassess the situation from anew and look at all that incoming information to see whether there is if this is telling me anything different. And then I will look at whether I will continue on that path I had originally planned. I think you can definitely see points in the sort of evolution of of an activity or or an event where you could have changed the course, but it would require you to step out and take that condor moment and reassess. But I think because we, the military is very active doing organisation, it kind of does it continues and it does and we need to finish stuff we need to complete stuff we need to get the end we need to get to the aim the task but I think we need to say is there something that's triggering me to have a think about something and whether my information coming in will make me change the way I had originally thought and that's a bit about flexibility and adaptability because it's so much easier for us to just continue on what we'd originally thought and that could be instinct it could be based on original planning but I think we need to just put in some points in time where we say no I'm going to reassess I'm going to look try and look from afresh and I think that would be really good thing to do.
0: I think you make a very valid point and and uh Obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing um, to be able to to look back and and um, and ch- and change the course of events, perhaps from where the decisions were made or not made. Um, but 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 also, we 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 are operating within a results based environment where we've already identified that that decision making is critical. Uh, you know, and inertia is is as much of an enemy as, as, as overthinking something. So, so how, how might one develop or educate thinking to allow that to happen? Is it because we perhaps are not doing enough or, or um, training perhaps or activity where it's too spasmodic, or are we just not allowing our commanders, whether it's big decisions up at the very top level of the, the military, or indeed business, of course, because this can these are, extrapolate all these out into, into the wider public-private sector. Is it because our senior decision-makers are too busy, or is it because our activity is too reactive and responsive and results-orientated?
1: I think it's a mix of the both. I think it's for for everyone particularly like service deliveries it's very people it's very easy to carry on with the original path and I think it goes into that almost that recognition prime decision making thing as well where well actually if the pattern fits and it all looks similar then I'll just carry on because that's kind of easy because we can't you know we can't always reassess what we're doing and how we do stuff so we just go along that that predefined path that we've, we've thought about. So I think it's the training I think would be really useful is to say, I'm going to put injects here. Not that change the situation dramatically, but just get you to reevaluate the scenario and the situation at specific points in time and to see whether you can come up with anything else. You know, look at something afresh. Actually, I'm going to do another look at the um, incoming information, the situational picture, whatever it is. And actually, see if I see something differently. And then you could also get somebody else in to say, I'm going to give you a different perspective on this. And have you considered that? Mm. So I think it's in training scenarios or whatever, or cereals, having some injects which just get you to take a stand back and reevaluate. And I think that would be quite useful.
0: I think you're right. I think allowing time and space to to train, and we talk already. You know, we talk a lot in the military about training to the point of failure, not training to failure, uh, to allowing people to understand where their natural boundaries might be when they don't know enough about what they're capable of doing, uh, perhaps, and that and that understanding of human capability, human performance, um, but also um one one's psychological makeup and and how that might affect decision making I don't think we we've we talked about it obviously uh, through the course of this this conversation which is, which has been fascinating. perhaps we can just explore one final factor, one final part of that is about you know and it's it's about sort of this, it is about the science and it's about the brain function and it's about getting the best out of people you know we've we've read about and and looked at sort of this euphemistic the the angels cocktail of dopamine oxytocin endorphins and how we actually get get the get the best out of people by activating those how how might we do more should we do more and, and understand more as leaders about how people react to things because of their physiological psychological makeup
1: I think, you could do. I think it's also worth knowing that people adapt so therefore you um, if you get used to stress or um, high levels of sort of challenge and excitement then you adapt to it and then you need more um, in order to um, to get the same levels of response so I think yes it is absolutely useful to understand some of that baseline sort of psychobiology in effect but I also think you need to know what's I think it's healthy because, again, you know, what's, what you learn to deal with on an operation, for example, will be very, very different to, to in, a, in, a, um, in a staff environment. And then you have to kind of bring that back down again. So, therefore, if you're very used to taking high levels of risk, for example, you get comfortable with that risk and it becomes normal. So, therefore, you're less likely to sort of produce whatever sort of um, uh, chemicals as a result of that. And then you, if you don't get those, then you'll seek them. But also it's down to your expectations and your and what you want from that environment. So, for example, a lot of our operations will send young, young men and women out there. They expect a high level of risk. They want a degree of risk as well. So therefore, if they don't get it, they'll seek it. So that's not just around the biology. That's also around the sort of the psychology of it, you know, what they expect and what they want. So... Yes, I think it's useful to have an underlying understanding of it, but I think you have to layer it with the kind of issues around motivation, um, attitudes, expectations, because they're really important too, particularly with operational environments, I think.
0: Do you think we should have a better understanding of that neurological or neurobiological makeup as leaders, or is it something that we should just accept and not worry too much about it? It, it It seems like perhaps there might be something there where if we understood... How human reaction and interaction can be improved by saying or doing certain things rather than, you know, it goes back to the transformational piece rather than transactional form of leadership. It, would that be something that we could develop more?
1: You certainly can get a better understanding about the underlying physiology. Uh, and psycho and biochemicals or psychobiology um, of it but do you need to know that unless you're going to give them um, drugs or injections or or whatever (laughs) or do you actually just need to know what the behavioral impact or the behavior result is in which case is it the way they're They're behaving the way they're seeking out risk, the way they're responding. So I would say as leaders, you probably need to know what the sort of the application of it is and the contextual kind of behaviours and motivations and psychology rather than the underlying. I think if you're going to use um, uh, the science um, as a mechanism, whether it's you know ass, you know um, assessing, you might be getting smart watches and assessing their heartbeat or something. Then then it would be useful, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, so you could say, you know, do we need to monitor people's sleep levels because mm. what's the impact on um, you know a sleep detriment? Um, but then you've got to be able to say, well, actually, do I have enough resources to put the ones that are really tired and having sleep deprived? Do I have enough resources to put them at the back in a rear party or whatever, and they just use those that are available? I don't know that we've got the resource at the moment. Okay,
0: but imagine, okay, let's for a moment, suppose that all things are possible. Um, Would it be beneficial to the outcome of an operation, for example, if one had that information and, and was able to either use the use of artificial intelligence to structure your team, Knowing that, you know, certain people's sleep patterns are being, have been disrupted or, you know, people's experiences and acceptance of risk, we're, we're all different because we've all done different things. And therefore, you can, you can build teams or elements of teams to do certain things. Surely, if, if there were no bounds, that would be, that's the ideal.
1: So that's where a lot of the underpinning research is kind of going towards, absolutely. So um, so that more individualistic makeup of operational teams, um, but then that's balanced against We're a kind of industrial, bureaucratic organisation that has to provide people to roles and people to task. Um, And we don't have that kind of we don't have that elite sports kind of mentality or environment which allows us to pick and choose and drop people. We have a team. We have a finite resource. We kind of have to use that finite resource um so there's a balance isn't there but absolutely a lot of the research is is definitely going with this kind of individual monitoring of your physiology yeah. um the application of how do we use it i think the problem is going to be or the the issues are going to be how we actually apply that mm. in a in a constrained resource constrained environment
0: It's it's fascinating and i'm and we could talk for hours, and um, you know that the, the with the with the evolution of the integrated review and and future soldier and how the army, the British Army's restructuring and reshaping itself into you know n- not just small teams, but you know a lot more focus on small teams doing upstream intervention. You know that is exactly where we we can be investing our resources, technology, science, you know, science and technology behind what we're we're trying to to achieve in terms of the outcomes on the battlefield or the outcomes on a deployment by building the right team of the right people at the right time is 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 exactly what you know where this can lead us surely
1: absolutely um but we've got to be able to practically apply it and i think that's where i'm kind of looking at I mean, and i would say that as an occupational psychologist it's all very well absolutely we are going in that direction but can we actually operationalize it Or are we going to be taking away so many people because they're sleep deprived, they're not they're not nutritionally, you know, fed enough because they had awful sausages for breakfast. Do you know what I mean? So we've just got to be absolutely pragmatic in how we do it.
0: Yeah, we're going down the rabbit hole of what what people eat for lunch, Um, which is important.
1: Absolutely. It's yeah. probably, you know, for an army, we need to make sure they're absolutely nutritionally sound basis.
0: Yes. Uh, and there therein lies the old, I think Wellington, an army marches on its stomach. Certainly someone far more um wise than than I said that. They're absolutely right. But we won't go down the route of picking apart what, what people are eating now. But um, Joanna, look, it's been absolutely fascinating. There's so much there that we I'd love to sort of to to pick apart. And I know there'll be there'll be a myriad of questions that will come um in the chat afterwards on as we as we as we publish. But if I may, I'm conscious of time. Um, thinking purely from a leadership perspective, you know, at the end of, of our of our conversations, we always ask um a, a few quick fire questions if you'll permit me I'll 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 fast them at you if, if that's all right so w- with regards to your work with the military who's the who's the best leader you've worked with and why oh god
1: <laughs> um I'm not going to say a specific one I'm going to say bits of people which means it's impossible because nobody's bits of people but um I like leaders who look at the people they have around them and use the resource they have and ask the people who know what they're talking about. And I would say that as a specialist, but I think it's respecting the team around them and, um, and actually asking them. I think they're the leaders that I like and respect and consider. And actually like talk to you. I like leaders that go out and talk to people.
0: Yes. And you're not going to tell us who you think the best one is? No. <laughs> I can tell you
1: so I don't think well, But hey, oh, that's well, that yeah. Space. Maybe we
0: could go down that route. Yeah, <laughs> we, we do We we should have some after after show uh, and notes or after you know we can do that one. It's a slightly easier question without. It slightly puts you on the spot and and forgive me for that. But the slightly easier question: Who do you think the most inspirational leader from history has been, and why?
1: I like quite a lot of leaders from the past because I think they were. They're more likely to be themselves. I like leaders that aren't so monitoring of their impact and their um, and what they say. That they kind of are comfortable in being themselves. That's, so I suppose it's the authentic leader. I kind of like people who are authentic, and then you trust them more.
0: With that in mind, um, authenticity is is absolutely is absolutely critical. And your, your, your rights are are you're right to sort of that bit about trust, which we talked about. And is, and is a key component of the attributes of a leader to be able to instill trust in, in, in oneself or from subordinates. You, you, you touched on a really interesting point. Do you, do you think the advent of so much social media mm-hmm. and, and, and introspection means that leaders are m- m- of, of, uh, wherever they may be or whomever they may be? Are more concerned about what people think about them than actually the decisions they're making.
1: Yeah, no, I think this is, I think it is a big issue. And I think it's in society, and I also think it's within the military. So the more we put in 180s, the more we put in climate assessments, the more we put in things like that. People have been constantly monitored. So if you're constantly monitored, you're being vigilant about what you say, what the impact is on other people. And that will detract from your ability to be yourself because you're worried that you're going to have a negative impact. You're you're worried that you're going to say the wrong thing. that You're going to offend people. So therefore, I think it will sort of almost constricts you being a natural leader, being an Mm. authentic leader and i think there is that that balance between how do we get the monitoring right and making sure that the impact and the humility is there but then actually giving people the confidence to lead being themselves mm. and 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 then develop that self better and i think i think it is a real issue at the moment
0: yeah i guess i guess i think you're right i guess the counter argument is if someone's trying to be a leader or trying hard to measure what they say perhaps they're not the right person to be the leader. And therefore, 180, 360 and feedback is exactly what we do need because then we we, um, reduce the likelihood of people being put in leadership appointments who are more concerned about, where they're going next rather than the people that they're actually taking with them.
1: I think so, but then you've also got a lot of people who are very genuine, who aren't saying anything wrong, but are very concerned that they yes. might cause offence. And yes. so you've got those that are less willing to sort of put themselves out, I think, because because they are concerned about offending others. And I think it's quite easy to offend people probably these days.
0: Yes. Whether yeah. they mean it or not. But, but important to be sincere and important to be... To be open and honest, and and actually, it, I think we are we are doing the right thing, certainly in society, but in the military in particular, about being absolutely open and honest and speaking truth to power, and saying you can't you can't say that or you can't speak mm-hmm. to people like that because yep. you know, ultimately, you know, everybody is equal and, and judged on one's ability, not and nothing else. I and mean, how well you perform is what you should be judged on, not 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 and nothing else. And you know, unfortunately, we're we're not quite there yet in some aspects.
1: Thank you how well you perform and how you perform I think this the approach you use as well it's the two isn't it
0: absolutely what, rather what's the most valuable lesson that you've learned leadership lesson that you've learned either, either personally or from those that you've worked with
1: I think uh, for me personally it's probably um, if you spread yourself too thin thinly you can't achieve as much so I'm certainly a victim of spreading myself too thinly that sometimes I just don't don't produce stuff. So um, I think there's that balance between um, having enough that you have a really good understanding of the situation, but also giving yourself the capacity to actually do stuff in mm-hmm. properly. You know, you could say that in the organisation, if we have so many sprints that we're not actually doing anything properly, how effective is that? Because none of them are really getting to any of the issues or any of the details. So let's perhaps concentrate and do things a little bit more properly. Um, and then I think we'd all be a bit more effective.
0: But good that we're starting to look at some of the the problems and the details. We now need to extrapolate that out and do the second and third order piece of, you know, getting behind the root of the problems and and understanding how we we solve them, yeah. What, uh, what, so final question, what's, what's the one piece of advice that you'd give a young Joanna Harvey who's starting her journey into the world of psychology?
1: Go for what you're really interested in. So for me, it was always doing something that's of interest um stimulating and of value so definitely don't don't be told by the people that actually you can't get a job in that area because it wouldn't happen um because you can and don't take on too much work so there's two pieces of advice I'd give myself
0: brilliant Joanna thank you very much for a fascinating conversation that I know will probably are will probably I'll probably cast more questions than than produce answers for, and and it will certainly provide all of us in the team here, and I suspect across the wider army and all of our listeners, real food for thought in terms of how we as individuals operate and how we can be better leaders and how we can get the best out of the people that we do lead. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A fascinating discussion there about the science behind how and why we lead. From the evolution of leadership theory through history, to current thinking on the importance of followership and the need to harness a team's wider cognitive potential. The importance of psychology and leadership decision-making is central to understanding how the art of science can be applied, especially so to avoid the danger of passive leadership, which can be as bad, if not worse, than toxic leadership. The opportunity to unpack the details behind who we are and how we lead is timely. The science of building teams remains critical and the role of the individual leader is pivotal to this. Our ability to understand psychology and how soldiers change their biological responses depending on the context of the situation they are in is critical to maximising talent and to achieve the right results in the right way. Although leaders within the army must use instinct on the ground, so too must they deepen their understanding of how and why they and their subordinates act and react to internal and external influences. Like us, I hope that Dr Harvey's insights have given food for thought as to how we allow science to help us become better people, better soldiers and better leaders. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.